0: Welcome to Sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, it's so great to be back with you. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here at First Alliance Church. We just came back off of some vacation time, and in that time, we were able to get some great rest. And that time culminated with our family actually adopting a kitten. And as you can see, uh, he's a cutie, and my kids are really happy about that. It's a cool story of how we were able to adopt that cat. So if you want to ask me about that later, I invite you to do so. It was so great to have Sundar Krishnan with us last week as Sundar has started to mentor me and as I've been getting to know him, it's been such a blessing to have access to his experience and his heart for God's word and for God's mission in the world. And today we're getting back into our sermon series in Luke and Acts, which really brings us into the everything that Jesus commanded us to obey uh, as we follow him in mission. In Matthew twenty eight twenty, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's talking to his disciples. So he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything, everything I have commanded you. And surely, he says, I am with you always to the very End of the age. And so we're a church that loves to just embrace the whole counsel of God, and that's what we're gonna do this morning. And as we approach today's text, I invite you with open Bible uh, to come with us on a journey uh, uh, where we are gonna consider the parable that Tony just read for us in Luke 18, verses nine to 14, to consider what God has to say to us today. And before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Living God, we thank you for this moment in history where we sit at your feet, opening our hearts and minds to receive what you have to say to us. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would enter into our weakness and our inability to understand and to grasp your word, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to retain what you say to us, And would you bring about a transformation of of our minds, our hearts, and our entire lives from our encounter with you this morning. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. What does it mean to be righteous? Righteous. That's not a word that people use in our culture on a daily basis. But believe it or not, it's actually something that we interact with each and every moment of every single day. Righteousness. What does it mean to live rightly? In his book, The Righteous Mind, moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt, that's H-A-I-D-T, who is not a Christian, uh, he's a psychologist, but he contends, and I quote, that an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. An obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. In other words, righteousness isn't just something that Christians or religious people are after, but that every single person is aiming their life towards some kind of definition of, of what it means to be righteous, how to live life the right way. This is really important for all of us if you're listening this morning. And this is what Jesus places before us in this passage. This idea actually comes in at the beginning and end of our text. It bookends the text. Look in verse 9 when Jesus uh, talks about this uh, introduces uh, that he's talking to people who think they are righteous. And then in verse 14, if you look in your Bible, you'll probably see the word uh, justified. And that's actually the same word as in verse 9. It's good to know this at the outset that uh, the Greek word dikaios, which gets translated into English, is translated into two words dominantly in English, both the words righteous and just righteousness and justice. It's the same Greek word in the New Testament. And and just as aside, what this shows us in the Scriptures is that the Bible does not fragment the issue of personal righteousness and social justice. The Bible does not pit those against one another and they're not optional electives as if you can, you know, opt for the one. I'm more of a personal righteousness person and I'll leave social justice to the other people. No, they go together and you can't truly have one without the other. This is really key to our understanding the biblical idea of righteousness and justice. So let's come back to this scene. Notice who Jesus aims this parable at. It says he told this parable to those who were confident in their own righteousness. Or as the ESV more literally, and I think helpfully translates it, he's speaking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You see, this parable is spoken to people who have an idea of what it means to live righteously, and they think they're nailing it. They're attaining the standard that they've aimed their life at, particularly this Pharisee within Judaism and the law of God. He thinks he's nailing it. But Jesus actually uses this parable to show us what it actually means to be truly righteous. And he does this by setting before us two people. First, there's the example of one who is self-righteous. And then secondly, the example of one who is truly righteous. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. So first, let's look at the first man. This this picture of self-righteousness is laid out in the Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were a group of highly religious people. They weren't professional clergy, but they were like lay people who took the law of God so seriously. Uh, They had this flawless and exacting and rigorous observance of God's law. And they actually viewed themselves as God's gift to Israel, to call Israel into the same kind of religious uh, and righteous and rigorous observance of the law. That's the first man who comes to the temple to pray. He's a spiritual leader in the community and he's revered by the community and he comes with boldness, right? He's almost strutting into the temple because this is where a person of his standing belongs, right in the center of God's business, in the center of the place of the worship of God. But notice, he does not leave justified, And the Pharisee exemplifies exactly the kind of religiosity that is actually offensive to God. And Jesus, as we've been tracking in Luke, Jesus has been so militant almost about making sure that there is no trace of this kind of religiosity and self-righteousness in his disciples and in us, his people. And one way to think about this is that the Pharisee and we in the church today can suffer from a particular religious disease that commonly spreads among religious types. And this just goes to show how prone to wander we are, how the depths of sin in us can take even such a good thing like the commands and the word of God and distort them for our own selfish purposes. So this is a word for us to hear this morning, especially a word for those of us who have been in the church for a long time. Self-righteousness is, is like a spiritual disease. And the figure of the Pharisee shows us three symptoms of this disease that I want us to consider. It's kind of like our own diagnostic test. You know, these days lots of people are driving in to get their COVID test. Well, this morning you get to come and do a bit of a spiritual diagnostic test on where you're at in this area. So the most obvious symptom of self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisees is self-preoccupation. Self-preoccupation. Look at what the Pharisee says when he prays. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, that I'm not like all the scum in the world or even like that tax collector sitting over there. In fact, I fast and I give a tenth of all I get. What's he really praying about? himself. He's completely self-preoccupied. He begins the prayer with the word God on his lips, but God is not at all in the content of his prayer. God is not even maybe the aim of his prayer. In a place where he is supposed to be before God, turning to him and receiving from God, all he can think about is himself, and that's not true prayer. You see, true prayer is actually meant to get us out of ourselves. And to bring us into God's presence with with our heart and mind. And I don't mean that we're not supposed to bring what we're feeling to God. Uh, And I don't mean a kind of spirituality and prayer that tries to totally erase who we are. In fact, our experience of ourselves is crucial to our experience of God. Our awareness of ourselves is crucial to our awareness of God. But as we come to God as we are, what He does in prayer is he lifts us up out of ourselves to behold him and to reframe our life in light of what we see of his glory and of his character and of his good purposes for us. But the Pharisee is self-preoccupied. He beholds himself. And there's a kind of prayer, right? If you've been at a prayer meeting in church, there is a kind of prayer that's like a broken record where We can just keep circling back to ourselves and our problems, or in in arrogance, circling back to how great we are, and we're praying almost in a way to like target other people who aren't quite as righteous as we are. We've seen this, we've experienced this. It's self preoccupied, and it's a symptom of self. Righteousness. Now, another marker of self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisee is self-superiority. Look, his prayer is just dripping with it. God, I thank you that I am not like all these other people. All those sinners and horrible people out there, that, this pathetic tax collector sitting over there. And what he's actually doing is instead of having a view for God, he starts comparing himself with other people. That's how self-superiority manifests itself. It's this comparison with others. That's what he's doing. He's not measuring the distance between himself and God. He's measuring the distance between himself and other people. And he does this in the very place of the presence of the divine majesty where what he should be doing is seeing how small and insignificant he is compared with the grandeur and greatness of God and to delight in the fact and to be grateful for the fact that this great God would have regard for him. No, the distance he measures isn't between him and God. He's measuring the distance between him and other people. My kids love to play in the rain. And in our little uh, apartment complex, they'll go out when it's pouring rain and they'll go digging in the garden, they'll go digging in the dirt, getting completely soaked, driving their trikes through all the puddles. And what happens is they'll come back in, right, and they'll sit there, go on our doorstep and they are just covered in mud. Now, what do you think I would say to my kids when they come? And I say, all right, guys, it's time for your bath. And say my son Eli was to look at his sister Zoe and say, but daddy, I'm not as dirty as Zoe is. I don't need a bath. What do you think I would say? I would say, of course you need a bath. You can't look at your sister's dirtiness and try to excuse yourself from what's coming. You both need a bath. You both are just as dirty as one another. And that's what's happening with the Pharisee here. He's trying to justify himself by looking at the dirt in other people's life and saying, at least I'm not that dirty. Do we do this today with our brothers and sisters or with people we see in the world? Do we look at the dirt in people's lives and the chaos and the mess And rather than feeling the burden of God to reach them with compassion and good news, do we look at that as a way to justify ourselves and say, well, at least I'm not like that person? It's completely futile. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We do not get clean, we do not get righteous by looking at the dirt in other people's lives and excusing the dirt in our own lives. And you might be doing that with the Pharisee right now. I mean, we've entered into this parable and obviously the Pharisee is the bad guy, right? If you've grown up in church, you know the Pharisee, he's always the negative example. And we've been conditioned to see the Pharisee this way and conditioned to think, I'm not like the Pharisee. And so we say, I'm so glad I'm not like that judge, mental self righteous, religiosity-filled person. I'm so glad I'm not self-preoccupied. I'm so glad I don't look down my nose at others. But do you see what just happened? We just did the same thing. You just look down your nose at someone who looks down his nose at others. See, it's this subtle disease, this self-righteousness, this self-preoccupation, and it's really hard to detect and even harder to uproot. And and let me say, friends, nothing will so hinder the mission of Jesus in the world to to, to make his good news known than the presence of self-righteousness and judgmentalism in the church. So let's guard against it at all cost. You see, the righteousness or unrighteousness of other people is Not the standard. The standard is God's righteousness. He doesn't want us to be cleaner than the next person. He wants us to be clean, period. The third symptom that we can see here of self righteousness is self exaltation. It's so clear that the Pharisee came to that temple that day, not with the intent to exalt God or make God's name great or proclaim his praises, but to exalt himself. His praise is for himself. He praises his religious observance and his acts of piety. And maybe he is honestly trying to impress God. Maybe he really is saying, God, look how great I am. But I think there's part of him too uh, that is also trying to impress people. That there's other people there in the temple at the prayer meeting. and, And he's speaking in such a way that they would be impressed with his importance, that they would be impressed and say, wow, this guy, really, we should respect him. We should revere him. He is super spiritual, he is indispensable to the purposes of God in the world. He's exalting himself. And this tells us today that not every prayer that is said at a prayer meeting is directed towards God. That not every prayer is for God's ear alone, that not every hallelujah or amen spoken in church is directed towards God. People of God, we need to be attentive to to our motivations and the drive to exalt ourselves. And let me just uh, clear the air here. We all do this. I do this. I mean, the whole notion of uh, total depravity um, and and that doctrine of sin that that we adhere to, it's not to say that nothing you do is good. It's to say that nothing you do is pure. Nothing we do is totally 100% free from sin or selfish intent. And as soon as I think, hey, you know, I just prayed a prayer and it was, I was totally humble. I was totally thinking about God. In that moment, what happened? Pride was conceived in me, the fact that I did it, right? This is normal for us, but we need to pay attention to this and, and bring this to God and let him cleanse us, let him sanctify us of the tendency to want to exalt ourselves. Now, I want us to turn to consider what it means to be truly righteous. And I'll direct your attention to verses 13 and 14 in our text. It says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes saying, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. So who was this guy? The Roman Empire was quite brilliant. When they conquered lands, instead of sending their own Roman tax collectors to go levy tax from conquered people, what they did is they went to those people and they co-opted people from within to become tax collectors. And what this did is it protected Roman citizens from reprisal as they went to try and collect tax, but it also helped to further divide and sow dissension in the people they had conquered. Because all of a sudden you have your own people working for the Roman Empire, taking all the wealth out from your land and bringing it to Rome. And so tax collectors were the biggest sellouts of their day. They took money from their people and then they inflated the numbers to take a nice generous cut for themselves. And then they sent the wealth to the Roman treasury. This man was as far away from the righteous living described in God's law as you could possibly get. He was hated by everyone in his community. And can you imagine how scandalous it would be for Jesus to say in verse 14 that this man went home justified before God? scandalous. You see, Jesus seems to be introducing a completely upside down idea of righteousness and what it means to be justified before God. So so what can we say from the tax collector about being truly righteous? What are its markers? The, The first thing I want to draw your attention to is that true righteousness comes to the end of itself. It comes to the end of itself. This just exudes from the tax collector in his body language. Look how he stood at a distance, right? he He's coming into the temple and he has no presumption to say, I have any merit to be here. He stands at a distance. He wouldn't even look up towards heaven. He's got his head bowed down. He's beating his breast. There is this total abandonment of his merits. And, and Just this realistic acknowledgement of his sin, of his inability to live up to God's standard. So he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And actually, literally, the text reads the sinner. The definite article is there. The sinner. In this moment before God, there's no one else. He is alone with God and he comes to the end, end of his efforts to get to God on his own. And he comes clean about his sin and his waywardness. He comes to the end of himself. Now, it might feel counterintuitive, but acknowledging our sin and acknowledging about how far we are from attaining the standard of God's righteousness is actually crucial to becoming truly righteous. You see, hiding our sin gets us nowhere. Looking at the sin of others to deflect attention from our sin gets us nowhere. We need to become clean, and sorry, we need to come clean and we need a different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that can't be found in ourselves. And so for us Christians today, as we follow Jesus, acknowledging our sin is crucial daily repenting, daily coming clean before God. Not to heap up guilt and shame, but it's actually when we do that that we're freed from guilt and shame. Why? Because we bring our failure into the view of God's mercy. And it's God's mercy towards us that disarms sin and its power and its hold on us. And that leads us to the second marker of true righteousness. It trusts in God's mercy that earnest prayer in that moment alone with God, his prayer is, have mercy. Have mercy. He knew that before the holy God of the universe, that unless God is who he says he is, that unless he is the God who forgives and shows mercy and is compassionate and faithful, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. Unless God is who he says he is, he has no leg to stand on. Brothers and sisters, do we throw ourselves on the mercy of God like that? And if we're not doing that on a daily basis in our life, I would contend that we are missing out on the freedom and joy of being claimed by God's mercy. The freedom and joy of being claimed by God's mercy. As a kid, I... uh, I once went to do mini putt with some friends, and at the end of our time playing mini golf, uh, I did something wrong. And um, one of the golf balls was a particular color that I liked, and I took the golf ball, I stole it, and I brought it home. I think I was seven or eight years old. And I think I had the golf ball for a couple days, and it was just eating away at me, the guilt of having stolen this golf ball. And so I came clean. I I came to my mom, and I felt terrified terrible and terrified of coming clean. But I came to her, you know, the the guilt had just so weighed me down. I came to her and I said, Mom, I did this. I stole this golf ball. And she said, okay, you did wrong, but it's okay, you're forgiven. And what we're gonna do, we're gonna drive and bring the golf ball back. And what I felt in that moment will stay with me for my entire life. And I know you're probably listening to this and going, okay, you were a kid, it was a golf ball, no big deal. But let me tell you, it was real for me. And just the freedom and the joy of having that weight of guilt lifted from my shoulders was palpable. I experienced the weight coming off of me. You see, that's what frees us from guilt is when we come clean, we come to the end of ourselves, we come clean with our sin and our failure, and we throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And we're brought into this incredible freedom of allowing ourselves to be claimed by his mercy. That's part of what it means to be truly righteous. Let his mercy claim you. And lastly, true righteousness exalts God. Now, this one is less obvious. We noticed with the Pharisee that he was just exalting himself, but it's important to note in the tax collector that as he comes to the end of himself, as he throws himself on God's mercy, he is in fact bringing glory to God. He's making God's name great because he's reaching out and touching something that is so fundamental to God's character, his mercy. God is holy and righteous and majestic and he is merciful. Check out what it says in Exodus 34, verse six. And what's happening here is Moses is on a mountainside and he's asking God to reveal himself to him. And here's what God says. God says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, he's slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. It's to the glory of God when we call upon him in a way that is in line with the truth of who he says he is. When we put all our weight on his mercy, that's to his glory, that exalts him. He is so honored by that because he's like, yes, that's who I am. That's who I am. And that's what the tax collector did. In the end, the tax collector is declared righteous. He's justified not because of some righteousness in him, but because he put his faith in God and Jesus declared him righteous. Notice that it is the declaration of Jesus, the son of God, as he gives this parable, the declaration that he is righteous, that makes him righteous. It's God's word. Jesus says that this man went home justified before God. That's a beautiful thing and that's good news because as you look at your life and you think, man, I fall short time and time again. Man, I'm full of self-righteousness. God, deliver me from this. And if you're a Christian, you've already been imputed the righteousness of Christ. It's not in you, it's in him. Now, I wanna comment on how we can experience this righteousness, this justification in our lives because you might say, you know, Andrew, you're talking about this, you know, this doctrine of justification by faith and that's all great, but like, how do we experience that in our lives? Let's talk about that. This parable is pointing us to the cross Of Christ that this Jesus who is speaking the parable is the word of God is the son of God who would die on the cross for us because God is both merciful and he's both holy and just and so our sin can't just vanish into thin air it needs to be dealt with if we are going to enter into the presence of God and partake in his righteousness that's what he did on the cross He offered the sacrifice that would cover our sin and our guilt so that we could come through the cross and enter into his righteousness. And this is available to you in your experience, in your daily life through union with Christ and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is what God intends for each one of us to live and breathe on a daily basis. Look at what it says in Romans 3, 22 to 25, this is probably one of the places with the clearest articulation of of what we're talking about here. Um, Paul talks about justification by faith. Well, this text in Luke would be kind of the gospel's version of that, given in parable form. Look at what Paul says in Romans 3, verse 22. He says, this righteousness, and he's talking about the righteousness of God, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall glo- short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And so what we get here, this picture of righteousness that we enjoy as Christians, isn't a righteousness that we found because we delved deep into us and we discovered who we truly are and we've become the best version of ourselves. No, it's found outside of ourselves. It's found in God himself. It's Christ's own righteousness imputed to us or counted to us to be, be received by faith. This is why Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, called it an alien righteousness. He wasn't saying that this righteousness comes from outer space, from an extraterrestrial. He means that this righteousness is not inherent to us. It comes to us from outside of us. We can't find it in ourselves. And we won't get it by becoming the best version of ourselves. It is to be found in Christ alone. It's the righteousness of Christ And that's the only righteousness that justifies us before God, and it's all the righteousness we need to be justified. So I wanna ask you, which righteousness are you gonna put your trust in? Your own righteousness or His? There's a passage that I absolutely love from Richard Lovelace's book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, that I wanna leave with you, and it really talks about how we can experience justification. Richard Lovelace says, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and of the extent and guilt of their sin that consciously they see little need for justification although below their surface, their lives are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. Many others have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification. Like the Pharisee, looking towards his pious acts of obedience as the ground for his justification. Drawing their assurance, Lovelace continues, of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequence of their conscious disobedience. Few enough know to start each day with a stand on Luther's platform. You are accepted looking outward in faith and claiming the alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance, listen to this, relaxing in the quality of trust, which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. Now, I know that's a pretty hefty quote. So let me break it down. It all comes down to so many of us in church and in our culture are stuck looking to our sanctification, looking to how we behave and act in order to justify us. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the order is reversed. Our sanctification does not justify us. It's our justification that sanctifies us. And so Lovelace is calling us as the church to quit looking to our religious performance, to quit looking to to how we can whip ourselves up to obey, uh, to quit looking to the, the fact that I only disobeyed three times last week, so I'm not that far off from God, but to just root our total assurance that we are accepted by God in the cross of Christ and to daily Wake up with that platform, that, that mantra, that word from God that in Christ you are accepted. How might your life change if you did that? People of God, as we go into this week to follow Jesus and live for him, to see the increase of his glory in our city and in our world, it's my hope that we move from this time trusting in his righteousness that the justification we receive by grace through faith would result in gratitude in us and sanctification and obedience and joyful living to the one who has shown us such great mercy and has rescued us. May the Holy Spirit come and may he do this in us. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.